Okay? The speech is from Back to School Night 2015. I have a confession to make. My kids couldn't tie their shoes until they were something like seven or eight years old. Velcro is a fantastic invention, and thanks to the ease of Velcro shoes, I could put off what many other parents pre-Velcro could not. My rationale was that because I was busy raising three little ones and starting the school at the same time, buying them Velcro shoes and or tying their shoelaces for them was easier and faster, keywords than teaching all three of them to tie their shoelaces with their chubby little fingers and waiting for them to actually be successful at that before we left the house in a mad dash at 7 a.m. on any given morning. Can any of you relate? How often do we as parents do this kind of thing out of love for our kids and an honest desire to bless and help them? Or sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, out of sheer busyness or laziness to teach them? Or even out of fear and anxiety when the stakes are higher than tying shoes, like when it comes to schoolwork? We may have the best of intentions, but follow to its logical conclusion what fruit does this type of parenting produce in the lives of our kids as they get older. Fast forward to upper school. Your kids are 12 and 13, even 15, fully capable of a lot, but not often required to do much for themselves in the name of allowing them to focus on their schoolwork and their activities that may give them an edge in the arms race that college admissions has become. So there you find yourself, still packing their snack and their lunch and hearing your kids complain about how they don't like what you packed. You find yourself still scrambling to go home, get and deliver their forgotten homework, forgotten lunch, forgotten blazer or pee clothes in the middle of your day. And yes, um, and while you may receive some extra hugs and kisses from your kids for being super mom and like that feeling for a moment, you find yourself stressed out and exhausted because unfortunately it seems to happen every other day and not just once in a while. If that weren't bad enough, you find yourself still sitting down with them to do or at least manage their entire homework process from start to finish, and you find yourself calendaring their sports events, test dates, project due dates, and checking to make sure your child hasn't forgotten any of those things. Like a good executive assistant, you're so good at doing things for your child that they have no intention of ever firing you, because their life as a whole is a whole lot easier when concierge mom or dad is around doing those things for them. And boy, do I have lots and lots of examples that I don't have to get into right now. I get it. I've been there and I've done some of those things as a mom myself, guilty as charged. In fact, you could even accuse me of being a prime example of an over-involved parent. I mean, come on, I started a school for my own children. I've been coming to school and staying at school with my kids every single day of their lives. I select their teachers and design the culture and curriculum they're immersed in every day. If that isn't over-involved, I don't know what is. Although, in the irony of ironies, I don't actually have any time to help them with anything school-related because I'm too busy running the school. All that to say, I get it. I really do. But do you want to know what happens when you leave the training wheels of life on for much too long when your child outgrew their need for them long ago? You think there will be some natural ending point to all this entitlement and enabling, but there isn't, not unless you're intentional about it. Fast forward to college. Parents are literally going to college with their kids, renting apartments near the dorms, doing their laundry and dishes for them on weekends, using the longest umbilical cord in the world, the cell phone, to check their child's every move, yelling at their roommates when their chronologically and legally adult children have interpersonal conflicts with them, helping their children pick their courses and actually registering for them, emailing professors to dispute grades when the students themselves can't be bothered to show up for class or office hours. Not so cute anymore, is it? Unchecked, this continues to the workplace as well. 
I've done a lot of interviewing and hiring over the past 10 years of doing school, and more and more parents are calling or emailing to inquire about jobs on behalf of their adult children. They even involve themselves in salary negotiations and evaluations sometimes. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. In fact, I got a call from a mother of a 30-year-old employee not so long ago, just hours after we had had a reasonably friendly, non-threatening, informal conversation about some growth areas we had identified. This mother called all huffy and puffy to tell me that her child was hurt because we gave her some constructive criticism and that we as supervisors needed to encourage her more as she was feeling very fragile right now. I held the phone away from my head in utter disbelief, completely flabbergasted by the conversation I was having. Clearly, this person had won a few too many participation trophies in her lifetime, and clearly those apron strings needed to be cut a long time ago. Anyways, if you didn't know what a 30-year-old failure to launch looks like, you now know. So how did we get here? What has happened in our culture that perpetual adolescence and immaturity is celebrated, and so many adults are only adults chronologically and legally, but back on their parents' couches at 30 and 40, having failed to launch? Why is it that even a few generations ago you could expect a 20 or 18 or 20-year-old to get married, raise a family, make and keep commitments and keep their word, but our cultural assumption today is that college-age students are reckless, selfish, and immature, and that real maturation really happens in some distant future long after that? Why is it that our children are growing up much faster in ways that we probably don't want, in terms of being hypersexualized very early, being marketed to at younger and younger ages, dressing like miniature 25-year-olds, etc., but in the most important ways, like responsibility and trust and wisdom, they are growing up far too slowly. Why is it that we'll say things like, that's so immature, but never really talk about what maturity actually looks like? How is it that we as a culture have not been able to put off childish things as the Apostle Paul talks about? I am certainly not alone in my musings on these matters. This sea change in American parenting and its concomitant impact on our children and young people, and as a result our future, is not just a blip on the educational radar or some isolated theoretical musing from the ivory tower, but a burgeoning national conversation with growing urgency, especially among high-performing public and private schools, where stress levels regarding achievement at any cost are high for both parents and students alike. And yes, I recognize that these are first world problems, and even amongst first world problems, they are problems created by upper middle class affluenza, which affects a relatively small minority of students. So you won't find a whole lot of sympathy out there for this topic, but it is a problem nonetheless, especially if these kids are perceived to be America's future leaders. The arms race that is childhood in affluent, competitive environments today is manifesting itself in anxious, stressed out, medicated students and parents alike, and is garnering national attention due to ongoing tragedies as the spate of high school suicides in Palo Alto and at the Ivy Leagues this past year. What once was a trickle of books on the topic um, such as The Blessing of a Skin Knee by Wendy Mogul, or The Price of Privilege by Madeline Levine, or Too Much of a Good Thing by Harvard psychiatrist Dan Kinlan, has turned into a veritable flood over the past decade as the concerns continue to mount about the nature and the shortcomings of education and parenting in the 21st century, the need for people who can think and innovate and thus compete economically, the need for and the current lack of grit, 
perseverance, curiosity, and character in our students, both academically and personally, and how to nurture more of this in our high-pressure, high-stakes environments, which inadvertently destroy exactly those things. Bestsellers like Paul Tuff's How Children Succeed and Stanford professors Denise Pope Doing School, How We're Creating a Generation of Stressed Out, Materialistic, and Miseducated Students, Excellent Sheep by William Derizovich, which I talked about last year, and movies such as The Race to Nowhere, along with recent bestsellers such as How to Raise an Adult by Julie Lithcott Haynes and The Gift of Failure by educator Jessica Leahy underscore the same things. Not only are over-involved parents not helping, they're actually doing a great deal of harm as they short-circuit the process of raising responsible, not entitled or enabled, adults. If nothing else, these books are raising better questions for parents such as, to what end are we doing all these supposedly beneficial things for our children, keeping them safe from all harm, protected from all disappointed disappointment, and keeping them endlessly busy? And they call us to question whether our definition of success for our children is too narrow, limited to only academic, athletic, and material success, instead of a more robust 360 degrees of human flourishing and success that include wisdom and a life well lived. So back to how we got here. According to Julie Lithcott Hames, who was the Dean of Students at Stanford for a decade and wrote the recent bestseller, How to Raise an Adult, American parenting over the past few decades has been shaped by the following forces, some of which may be familiar to you depending on how old you are. The first is childhood, the childhood safety as a movement. I don't know about you, but I remember riding in the back seat of our 1970s avocado green family station wagon without a seatbelt for a good long while during my childhood as we zoomed along freeways and through busy intersections. All that fun ended in the late 1970s as a spate of safety laws to protect kids were passed. First came seatbelt laws, then came car seat laws, which keep changing so that I think my very petite sixth grade daughter may need to still be in a booster when she finally reaches 80 pounds, which could be in ninth grade at this rate. Helmet laws and playground safety laws that divested playgrounds of all the fun spill till you get sick, spin till you get sick rides, and killed many a childhood adventure. The 70s and 80s were all about keeping them safe and sound, and parents got the message loud and clear. If some safety for kids was good, a lot of safety must be better, so they took things one step further and sought to become human bumper guards for their children everywhere they went. All across the nation, metaphorical bubble wrap sales went through the roof as parents scrambled to protect their children from every childhood mishap possible, as if making it out of childhood completely unscathed was the holy grail of parenting. Just kidding about the bubble wrap. This overprotective instinct to kids keep kids safe was fanned into flame by the stranger danger of the 1980s. After young Adam Walsh was tragically kidnapped and murdered in the early 1980s and his story told to millions in a famous made-for-television movie, we began to see the faces of missing and exploited children staring out at us on our milk cartons at breakfast and lunch, and all of a sudden the world began to feel like a more sinister place. Even the Bernstein Bears were concerned about stranger danger and wrote colorful, cartoony children's books about it in the mid-1980s, bringing this home to even the youngest children. Urban myths about razor blades and apples and poison and candies at Halloween forever changed Halloween as of the mid-1980s. And the birth of cable news channels and 24-7, 365 days a year news fed this frenzy by showing us the human depravity and horrors around the clock, proving once and for all that indeed there is such a thing as too much information.
Not surprisingly, parents started having their children play indoors more and stay within sight at all times. Add to this context the landmark Nation at Risk report in 1983, which told us that American students were falling behind in every possible way and losing ground to little tiger countries of Japan, Korea, Singapore, and Hong Kong. It used strong language, which I'm paraphrasing here about our educational system, such as, if a country wanted to wage war on us and destroy us from the inside out, one really effective way to do that would, to be, would be to give our kids the kind of education we are choosing to give them ourselves. And in one fell stroke of the pen, the high-stakes testing movement in America was born. No child left behind, race to the top, and other such efforts to make us more like our high-performing Asian counterparts fomented an achievement culture based on high-stakes high stakes testing and grades, which ironically ended up negatively impacting actual learning and just about killed a love of learning in our kids. Now, if the 1980s are starting to look like a pretty bad decade in terms of more than just big hair, it was. Add to safety, stranger danger, and high-stakes testing, the birth of the self-esteem movement of the 1980s, and you've got the perfect storm for completely changing American parenting. Not only was the world unsafe and our students doing badly academically, we also needed them to feel good about their dismal performance. Hence the birth of the participation trophy, medals for just showing up, and student of the week bumper stickers. This conferred self-esteem, which no one really buys, even the kids themselves, instead of self-esteem that is the natural byproduct of actually mastering something and doing well, has been a deep disservice to several generations of students since the late 1980s. Sticker charts, reward systems in schools for fulfilling the most basic expectation soon ruled the day. Sidebar, the inventor of the self-esteem movement himself, Nathaniel Brandon, said it was worthless 30 years later, but long after those things had become entrenched ways of doing school. And last but not least, with mothers entering the workforce in record numbers in the 80s and needing to schedule playtime for their children came the creation of the Playdate, circa 1984. Scheduled play meant more parents observing play and then getting involved in children's play. Think of Jimbury. My own mother and grandmother who lived through the Korean War thought it was absolutely ridiculous to pay someone so that I could play with my own baby at a scheduled time set by someone else. A byproduct of all this involvement of moms in play meant that leaving kids alone at home became taboo and the sign of poor parenting, and thus the overscheduled over child and the stressed-out, over-involved helicopter parent were born in the early 1990s, just as the latchkey kids of the 70s, who often felt neglected by their working parents, were having children of their own and wanting very much to correct or overcorrect that error in history. So out of equal proportions, love and fear for their children in an amateur effort that is parenting for all of us, we find ourselves with too many children and young people today who are either entitled, feeling like someone somewhere owes them something for doing nothing, or enabled by well-meaning parents who want to clear the path of all obstacles for their children instead of preparing their children for the path ahead with all its bumps and bruises. And in doing so, they end up raising rare and exquisite specimens of high-achieving children who are supposedly smart and have the right pedigree and alma maters and have played it safe and haven't made any glaring mistakes along the way. Children who've done amazing humanitarian work in far-flung countries to look good on their college applications and have taken 23 AP courses, of course with the help of tutors, but who have breathed such rarefied air that they cannot make their own beds, pack their own lunch, 
launder their own clothes, etc., and cannot risk failure or cope with failure and deal with anything less than perfection, and cannot muster the inner resourcefulness, resilience, and character to resolve their own problems at college, at work, in relationships, or in life. Given this sad trajectory that we're on as a society and the consequences that this will have for us for decades to come, the cultural moment is ripe for a robust rebirth of classical Christian education as a rigorous but humane and developmentally appropriate way of equipping, not enabling or entitling, our children to become wise, virtuous, winsome, and responsible young adults. Classical Christian education is a great antidote to the cultural madness and malaise that we are witnessing firsthand in both parenting and in education, if you'll let it be. And no, we don't need another survey or researcher to tell us so. Everything I've read about education lately, from Common Core to Tony Wagner's 21st century learning skills out of the Harvard Ed School, to Carol Dweck's research at Stanford on mindset, to great technology use in schools, keeping cursive writing alive and character campaigns at schools, all of this points to the absolute soundness and the benefit of things that we are already doing in a time-tested classical Christian education, and stuff that we've been talking about since our founding 10 years ago. And these things seem like all, seem all the more appropriate and seem to be some much-needed common sense now more than ever. And this is because classical Christian education is sound in its distinctive ends, means, and anthropology. And what is our clear telos, our purpose? Formation of wisdom and virtue, and not just college admissions and a job. What is our time-tested means? An integrated curriculum, culture, and pedagogy to form students' intellects and affections. And what is our clear biblical anthropology? One that says that we are more than homo economicus, more than our degrees, job titles, and salaries, more than merely homo sapiens, knowing, informational beings. We are made in imago dei, in the image of God, as also homo edorans, worshiping beings, homo creons, creating beings, 360 degrees of human flourishing. And we are able to be this because classical education itself was born in an age of Greek tyranny and demagogues as a mean of preserving a free person's freedoms. And everywhere throughout history where there was a rebirth of freedoms, whether political, spiritual, economic, social, etc., classical Christian education was a significant part of that story, be it the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the Great Awakenings, abolition, you name it. And this is not entitlement. This is not enabling. But for those of you who may still be wondering what harm there is in a little entitlement or enabling when it's not likely you're beating your children with a stick, let me say this. Those two things, entitlement and enabling, often lead to exploitation. Like the alliteration, I'm channeling my inner pastor or my inner Russ with all his fancy acronyms and alliterations. If kids don't learn how to think and do things for themselves, how to analyze and order the endless streams of information coming at them nonstop, if they don't know how to synthesize disparate ideas into wise and winsome wholes, and if they haven't been well-formed in their intellect and affections, if they can't tell the difference between propaganda, marketing, and truth, and the categories of good and bad, beautiful and ugly, truth and falsehood become conflated in their minds and their souls, they will easily be exploited politically, economically, spiritually, socially, etc. And the rest assured this will do equal if not greater harm than beating them with a stick. That's why this, this effort to recover the liberal arts in the form of a classical Christian education is so important. 
not just for our kids so that they can get into good colleges and get a good job, but also for us as a society long term. It's the best defense that I know of in the face of our current cultural milieu, and perhaps the last best hope of society, and perhaps Western civilization, if that's not overstating the case, to stave off the enslavement and the exploitation in various forms, subtle and not, that comes with not being able to preserve our own freedoms. In the face of such huge cultural forces, classical Christian education gives us a clear path for moving from where we are now to where we ought to be. For the sake of our own kids, the school, the local community, the society in general, and the future. For the liberal arts, taken from the Latin word libera, which means free, are the freeing arts and the liberating arts. And in fact, they were and they are intentionally designed to keep people from being exploited, or more positively, designed to help people preserve their God-given dignity as image bearers, and to preserve their God-given freedoms from from the invisible and sometimes subtle tyrannies of politics, economics, and culture, which is exactly what they have done for the past two millennia. And while we are glad that you've chosen us to be your partners in the equipping of the intellect and affections of your children, we can only be successful in our mission if we have good partners in you and vice versa, and if we're on the same page about our common goals to raise and send forth wise and virtuous adults, not overgrown children, into the world with a broad and biblical definition of success and not content ourselves just to raise children who are merely smart and good test takers. It's all about raising adults, not raising children. So let's keep talking about it in those terms. And to do that together, it's important that you recognize where we are culturally and join us in swimming upstream against some of our culturally accepted cultural norms and seek to equip your children by being appropriately involved in their education and by being intentional to remove the training wheels in all spheres of life over time, both academic and personal, sooner rather than later, so that they can grow towards responsible self-governance. And what a blessing to do this while steeped in a culture of grace that understands that neither failures nor successes define you, if your identity is rooted in the solidity of Christ's work on the cross. That perfection and excellence are two completely different things, the former soul-crushing and the later life-giving. And that failure is one of life's greatest teachers, and that failure happens and should happen often and early, so you can learn resilience and get up that proverbial eighth time, when the stakes are hopefully lower rather than higher. So as you can see, there's a fine line between involved versus invasive parenting, and encouraging your children versus enabling them. And let me make sure that you are hearing us loud and clear. We are grateful for responsible, responsive, and appropriately involved parents, as so many of you are. The problem is when parents assume all prerogative, initiative, and responsibility for their children instead of letting them do it themselves and making a few mistakes along the way. Because then we insulate them from experiences that can facilitate growth and resilience. And by actively protecting them, we send the message that they're not capable of coping on their own. So even more than the perfect college resume, we are hoping that these are important formative years for your child's character and habits, and that you will value the partnership we have in preparing your children together, not just for college, but a life wisely and well-lived for the glory of God and good of neighbor. And this is best done in community in a community of gospel-informed grace, which is something that we, by God's grace, strive to be. Remember, your job as a parent is to put yourself out of a job eventually. 
You want to prepare young adults for the VUCA world that they that will be their future. VUCA being an acronym for a world marked by volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, and one that will most certainly be challenging and inhospitable at times. And you do this best not by protecting and directing your children endlessly. There is a time and a place for that, usually when children are very young. But then your parenting style needs to change along with their developmental needs and move towards training and equipping and eventually to coaching and mentoring as they move towards adulthood. They need to struggle and strive without us and to find their own satisfaction in overcoming challenges and obstacles. In kindergarten, our students observe the entire process of metamorphosis as a caterpillar becomes a chrysalis and emerges a beautiful butterfly. And if you've ever seen butterflies trying to emerge out of their cocoons, you know that there is a great struggle to emerge as their transformed, mature adult selves. Because it's such a labored process watching butterflies try to break forth from their cocoons, when observing it, you want nothing more than to grab a pair of scissors and snip the cocoon open for the butterfly to make it faster and easier for them to get out and fly. But as our little kindergartners know, if you do that, if you remove the struggle from the process of maturation, the butterfly's wings will not circulate the blood needed to allow them to fly. So in helping to remove the struggle, you have actually handicapped the butterfly and truncated its growth. Our children are very much like those butterflies emerging from their cocoons. Their growth is in the struggle, and we would do well to heed the lesson of the butterfly and let our children struggle and strive appropriately on their own now so that they might fly strong and beautiful as adults someday. Then our children will rise to take their place as the strong, resilient, resourceful, wise, virtuous, and compassionate adults that God made them to be and that you have always hoped and prayed they would become. And that's what we've been doing these past 10 years at the Cambridge School. And by God's grace, that's what we hope to continue to do for the next 100 years. For schools like Cambridge are needed for such a time as this. Thank you.